This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is part of our ongoing series on white privilege and racism in Maine, and I'll be speaking with Paul Marcus, who is a white anti-racist activist, educator, and consultant. He's the lead trainer at Community Change Incorporated in Boston, an organization where he served as executive director for 16 years. He co-taught and taught the history and development of racism in the United States of America at Boston College for 16 years, and has recently taught Dynamics of Racism and Oppression at the Simmons College Graduate School of Social Work. He plans and leads workshops and trainings nationally. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Paul. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here. I'd like to start with where it started for you. Um, I know you've been doing this work, educating whites about the dynamics of racism for so many years, but how did you come to this yourself? How you began to understand this was very important for white people to get? Sure. So that's a, that's a, a long answer. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Um, I got out of school and wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I got a degree in biology and ended up teaching in independent schools. And I did that for 16 years, both in the United States and in England. And through that process, um, I, there was always a discomfort that I felt, and that was certainly a discomfort around class issues, As I, 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 although I didn't realize it at the time. But my last job, I was teaching at a, a, a private day school in, in New Hampshire, and I was put in charge of a process uh, they were going through called the Multicultural Assessment Plan, which was the National Association of Independent Schools was had a, had a tool to examine where schools were around multicultural and anti-racist education. And it was like going through an accreditation process and you did an internal study and then and a team came. And, and in going through that process at the school and going through uh, some trainings and, and learning a lot at that time, I really began seeing things that I felt other people weren't seeing. And I, I, I know this is a similar experience. And in fact, it's an issue that happens with with white folks all the time that um, you start seeing this and you become like a reformed alcoholic and, 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 and you don't realize that you've been given an analysis through which to look at the world, but you, you think you have been given a club to beat people over the head with. And so through that process, I got, um, I, I, I got marginalized pretty quickly. And I think that can happen oftentimes when people are trying to do the work internal in their own organization, internally in their own organization. And I realized that I wanted to, to do, do this work. And at the time, I was working with the New Hampshire Central American Network. And the co-director there said to me, well, if you want to do this work, you have to meet Horace Selden. And Horace Selden is the founder of Community Change. He founded it in 1968. And, and I went down to Boston, Boston and met Horace and decided to leave teaching. And um, I, I came and started volunteering at Community Change and, and did some consulting work, although I kind of defined myself as self-unemployed during that period of time. And um, it, I, I had the good sense to know, while I felt very comfortable and capable in terms of teaching, I fortunately, I'm not sure why, I had the good sense to know that I needed to learn a lot before I stepped out and began doing this kind of work because I felt I could, I understood I could do much more damage than good. Well, and- let, let me let me ask you to jump in there, Paul, because I want to come back to that, that 
moment where you realized you were kind of using your new knowledge as a club to beat people with mm-hmm. and, and that you, that ended up resulting in you getting marginalized and not taken seriously? Because I think that happens so often. Can you tell me, like, tell me how that you were actually doing that? How were you beating people with a club? Well, I, I, I was uh, I was seeing things and naming them, and I didn't yet have the knowledge. We always talk about developing knowledge, skills, and dispositions around this work, and I, I wasn't very far along in any of those three areas. And so I, I would see something, and I would I would name it, or I would you know I would just talk about the importance of doing the work, and I, and I didn't have I didn't have the the knowledge base, and I didn't have the skills to have um, the you know to have the conversations around these kinds of issues. So what, what's the kind of thing you would see in name? I would see um, just a lack of interest in the issues, and I would be trying to name how significant and how important it was for the, for the school to be dealing with these issues and the impact, but in, in, and I didn't have all the answers yet to do that, and I think I would, I would push people away. And it wasn't, it wasn't just my, um, I think it wasn't just my sort of ev- ev- evangelism that, that got me marginalized. I think this can happen with anybody who... Um, who isn't isn't strategic enough, and I think I just didn't have the knowledge for that to strategic to build to, to to build that process gradually rather than to take it head on. Um, so I'm not sure I have any any really specific examples, but I think that would be a good one. I would just talk. How can you not see this as important? Or I you know I I talk about some issues in in like the history curriculum, or I'd name some things in the way the history history was being taught. Or I'd probably throw James Lowen's lies my teacher told me at a, at someone and say, you know, read this. I see. I mean, I certainly I can I think about when I was in the height of my, you know, sort of Central American human rights activism. I think I could get really self-righteous in a way that was very off-putting. Do you feel like you went through a self-righteous yes, phase? Yes, yes, I, I, I certainly did. I, one of my guiding principles is that good judgment comes from experience, much of which comes from poor judgment. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's been my, that's my lifelong process. That's the great news about you having done this work for so long is by now <laughs> you've really figured it out, I'm guessing. Or you've learned it. Oh, yeah, it's all it's all figured yeah, out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that you know, that that never happens. And, and, you know, it almost feels like the more you learn, the less, you know. Uh-huh. And and um, it's a it's a constant challenge. This is lifelong work, and you know, particularly for those of us that are white, um, you know, we have a lot to to unlearn. Yes. Okay. So I interrupted you. So you were saying you left teaching. You got involved initially volunteering at Community Change, and I'm imagining you in sort of immersing yourself and learning more. Yes, and ha- having the opportunity to, you know, have Horace Selden as my mentor. Um, and, you know, Horace is 91 and still going strong. He's after after leaving Community Change, he became a park ranger and worked with the Black Heritage Trail in Boston and, and is now probably the leading scholar on William Lloyd Garrison in the country. And he's still at 91 going stronger than most people. Um, so I had the opportunity to, to be able to be with him and, and learn from him and and do workshops and, and facilitate workshops. He, he actually started the Boston College class, and, and I sat in on that class my first the, the first semester I was there with him, and then from that point on I started co-teaching it with him, and then I eventually took the class over on my own. So, Paul, I know this is a while ago, but I'm wondering if you can remember in those early days of you learning, and here you are, you're learning from this very senior figure around these issues. What do you remember were some of the big kind of aha moments when you immersed yourself in this work around white racism? 
Well, I'll even talk about one before community change. I was doing, I went to an anti-racism workshop and this, a woman, Barbara Riley, was facilitating. She and a guy named Bob Moore were facilitating this workshop and, and I was kind of in my good liberal white guy place and I said, why can't we all see each other as human beings? And, and she said that um, if you don't see my race and my color in this society, you're, you're not seeing my humanity. And I kind of went, Duh. And, you know, it's another piece I've sort of been, I, I don't know if it's fortunate about or not, but for me, I, I, was, I was sort of angry at myself for not seeing it, but I've never felt guilt or shame around this because one thing that became clear to me um, early on was that I was born into this system, and, and so I didn't have any control over, over that. What I did have control about is how I responded once I understood you know, once once I understood what was going on. So she says to you, if you don't see my race, you don't see my humanity. And and you say, duh, but what do you think she meant? Well, you know, it's it, 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 now that I, that, that happens, I get that question often in workshops, and it's really interesting when a woman asks that question. It's, I don't, I can't, there's not the quite same answer for a white man, but when a white woman asks that question, I can, I can respond and say, you, you know, that's really interesting, and I, I I agree with that. And you know, I'm gonna and I don't see you as a as a woman. I just see you as a person. And she gets she it. Starts laughing. And, <laughs> you know, so be, because we have to. There's more. There's so much more context here, so that I have to talk a little bit about how I understand race and racism to even answer that okay, question. Okay, please do. So, so, first of all, we know that race isn't real. In, in the sense that there's no biological reality to race. There's a biological reality to skin color and physical appearance. But, you know, we, we know from years of looking at the human genome now, and my biology background helps me a lot in this. I have a strong interest in this area of this work, um, that there's no, there's no genetic correlation to the groups that we have assigned and, and made up as races. There's no genetically black person, no genetically white person. So, so that race is a social construct. Okay, then let me just because I've been talking to people about that, and I get a ton of pushback. So I want to. Mm-hmm. The question that sure. I keep getting when I raise that is, well, if it is, if there is, you know, genetic coding for skin pigment and color of the skin, then what do you mean by there's no biological basis for race? What's the difference? Well, the the assumption that would that would. The assumption, what race is, race is not the skin color. Race is the meaning that we've given to the skin color. Aha. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's a great John Powell has a great quote that that race isn't real like money isn't real. That that a dollar bill doesn't, you know, it's a piece of paper, and it has value because we give it value. It's what it represents to us. Exactly. So um, there's 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 absolutely no biological i mean I, we can talk a lot about the science of that but there's there's no you you there's there's no genetically black person in fact if if you go to africa and you look at if you just look at the um the, the genome in africa there uh, about i i don't know the exact number but it's in the mid to high 80s probably like 86 or 87% of human variation is conserved in in that population and and so you know as a species we haven't Evolve. We haven't been we haven't been around long enough to to speciate, and so there you know skin color and hair color 
and and things like that are sort of minor surface variations. And it's a, it's a, it's a very comp, you know, it, it gets very complicated when you begin talking about sports and there's a lot of research on, on that too. But the, the reality is, is that there's no more meaning. There's no more connection between your, between your intelligence and your skin color biologically or your ability to run or dance or do any of those things than there is between your hair color and your eye color and those things. Right. So in other words, race is really all about the meaning we make of it. It's not a hard biological fact in the way that we, I think, are kind of taught to think about it. Exactly. And, 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 and that the way that we're taught to, taught to think about it is deeply, 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 deeply embedded in, in, in the foundations of, of our, our, our nation um, prior to its founding. I mean, going back to the 1600s, and that's a, that's a longer conversation. And so then when I, when I get back, and I, I, the other major transformation for me was, was understanding racism in a very different way. Um, so we look at, when we're talking about racism, we look at it on four dimensions. We look at it at the internal dimension, how, you know, how we think, feel, what our values are. Um, we look at it at the interpersonal dimension. We look at it at the institutional dimension and the cultural dimension. And those four dimensions are interlocked and interdependent. And the vast majority of people, and I've, I've asked this question now between workshops and classes to, to probably well over 10,000 people. So I have pretty good um, um, evidence of what people's answers are. And the vast majority of people understand racism on the internal interpersonal dimensions. They understand racism as things that people think and act on. And the transformation for me was moving to an understanding of racism, that racism is a system, and it's a system that is created when um, we, we could define it in the form of an equation, um, racial prejudice plus systemic power. And so it, it's a system that's created when one group has the power to shape, um, um, to, to, to make it, to take its prejudices and, and, and make them into policies, practices, laws, and shape a culture with it. And so if for me, that was a, a, a massive transformation. And, and, and so much so that I, and I, and I, I came up with this on my own, but a lot of people did it independently at the same time. But I, I use the analogy of the movie The Matrix. Okay. And for folks who haven't seen that film very briefly, um, the, the human race has been put into these pods and we're being used as um, batteries to power machines. Artificial intelligence has gotten really powerful, and, and humans are fighting it out for the for, for the um, control of the planet. And and we decide to destroy the surface of the planet and spew all the uh, spew everything up in the air so that the sunlight can't get through, and the machines will run out of energy. But they realize that they can use us, and so we're all in these pods being used by machines, but to power machines. But we don't know that we're there because we're plugged into this incredibly powerful. Um, artificial reality program. So we think, you know, if, if that was the case, we'd be having this conversation right now and everything that around us would be happening, but we're really not here. And some people have uh, figured out a, a way to get out of the matrix and it starts by taking a red pill. And then you go through this whole process of disconnecting from the matrix and seeing reality for what it is. And for me, um, moving from an internal interpersonal understanding of racism to a um, systemic structural understanding of racism was like taking the red pill. Okay, so I want to spend a little time with that because um, 
Right. So my understanding of the matrix is, right, the, the people think they're leading their regular lives just like we all do, but in fact, they're being used the whole time and the whole thing is an illusion. So if we translate that to racism, so it's like this huge awakening of realizing the nature of reality is totally different than what I thought is what you're saying, right? Yes. And so help, help me kind of get that in a really concrete way. If, if racism is not the kind of like my, my feelings and thoughts or my relationship with this person, but it's really this whole system of cultural ideas and laws and practices that systemically, you know, set it up to be very unequal. How, how did that shift your whole sense of reality? Well, it, it, that, that led me then to look at our history and, and, and look at the, the history that I wasn't taught and it moved me to understand that, that you know, that we live in a nation that, um, as Horace Selden used to talk about, we live in a nation that was founded on a, on a terrible contradiction. On, on the one hand, quote unquote, all men are created equal. But on the other hand, clearly that's not the reality. And it's, it's through, it's trying to, we're, that, that contradiction is a struggle for the soul of the nation. And we're still dealing deeply with that. And so I began to understand that the injustice that I was seeing in the world was, you know, that, that I was seeing was, was systemic and structural and, 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 and often intentional and sometimes non-intentional because of, because it was the, because of the inertia of a system, it just kept, kept going on. So the, 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 um, the massive injustice of it, I think, had a profound effect on me. I see. Okay. You know, we, we talk about this a lot that there's, a, there's a belief, I think, often with, with white folks that, particularly around these issues, that, um, that, that we need to have people of color around us and to bleed for us to understand this. And it, it became pretty quick, clear quickly to me that I had, you know, I, I could, there's a lot, there was a lot in writing, there were a lot of videos, there was a lot to read. So I, I went into a deep learning mode about this. And at the same time, I was doing this work and had the opportunity to be having conversations with Horace and, and, and the, the privilege to be able to be doing the work with community change in communities of color and, um, you know, just just sort of observing a lot and learning. Um, and and it, I think it was it was through that process. It was through the process of, you know, and at the same time, dealing with gender and dealing with what it means to be a male um, you know, so being a white straight male um, in a society that that where you know things are set up pretty well for me, whatever class I come from. So you kind of made the parallels. Is that what you mean? Oh, I think yeah, I think very clearly. I mean, I think that you know the definition that I gave you that I we talk about for racism would be the same definition I would give for sexism, which would be you know sexual prejudice plus systemic power. Yes. One of the things I was hoping to talk about with you today was about the kind of what are some of the common mistakes that you observe in what in well-meaning white people who are trying to really grasp the nature of racism and kind of figure out how to be constructive with it. Um, And I'm wondering if if one of those is actually what you're saying, which is still thinking of racism as just like, well, you just have to be more respectful as if that would solve it instead of really getting like, this is so deep and so entrenched and so pervasive. 
I, th I think that that's a, that's a major stumbling block. You know, it's interesting in the, in the workshops that we do, I work with a woman named Donna Bivens. Um, we've been working together. She was the co-director of the Women's Theological Center and now is working on a project with Union of Minority Neighborhoods in Boston, looking at um, the, the impacts of the DSEG issues in Boston on the present day in education systems. And we've, I, th I really feel we've developed a workshop that brings people through a process so that they, um, they, they, I think there's a there's a freedom in understanding that it's not about you as an individual, but that you're part of this system. And we really focus on the systemic reality. It's not about me being a bad person, um, and it's not about most people being bad people. We, you know, we're 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 functioning and operating in this in this system. You know, I, I I remember in the class at BC, the first book that the students would read was the autobiography of Malcolm X, and I'd always shock the students when you know. I, I said, yeah, I agree. When Malcolm X was talking, I said, you know, white people are the devil, you know, and 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 I say, well, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I, I I never took that personally. I understood that he was talking about the system of whiteness, not like individual, not every individual person. And 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 I think that that's been a big, a big piece for me. I think another thing for those of us that are white, we're we're, we're taught because we're so much the, we're the norm in society. The vast majority of white people. Of people who and I, we always put white in quotes, and you know, whiteness is—it's not white. We some you know we get in conversation about white culture. White culture is a political culture. It's not—it's not culture in the same way that we would talk about Italian, you know, ethnic culture. Um, so, so another piece that for for whites is that we 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 often do take it personally because there you know there's so much baggage around racism. When someone says something's racist, we you know it it gets in first of all it gets in the way of our learning because we don't want to do or say or see anything you know do anything that's perceived as being racist. So we're afraid to speak up. And one of the transformative practices we use is go out on a limb. And I always say you know go out on a limb because that's where the best fruit is. It's so it's, in fact it's when we make those mistakes. And and that's what safe space for me is all about. The name of your show, safe space, is it's a place where we're, we we can make those mistakes and and not get beat up for it. However, it doesn't mean that we're it's not going to hurt in a sense that it's not going to be. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. And what um, and what kind of mistake? What would be an example of a mistake? Well, somebody saying something. Um, oh, I you know I'll just you know I'll make a, someone is someone using the term oriental for example, would be something. And, you know, that, that could offend a lot of people. Yeah. And so, um, and, 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 and so we're, we're, we often, we're afraid to make those mistakes. But another piece of this, I think that's really important is we, we also, we've been taught to see ourselves as individuals and we don't, we don't think of ourselves as part of a group. Um, it's interesting. One, a question we've often used is, you know, we, we, in a, at the beginning of a workshop, or I've used this in classes too, is what's your relationship to race? And the vast majority of white people define that relationship in terms of the other. Like they'll start talking about the first time they saw a black person. And again, I probably would have done that before going in, you know, before having a taste of the red pill. And, and now my answer to that is my relationship to racism. Sitting in my house on a Friday night, I'm a little kid and I'm, the Flintstones are on and I'm sitting in a chair and my parents are there and I'm just living. And I'm, so I'm, I'm becoming white in, in a sense. And, and so a, a big stumbling block for a lot of white folks is not realizing that we have a race and that that race is a significant piece of who we are. So that when we ask that question, very few white people 
have race in one of the if we ask people to talk about what the what the major aspects of their identity are very few white people i find name race as one of those one of those primary identities and and that's very telling and what does it tell you well it tells me that we don't think that we 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 don't think that we have a race that race is so normative there's so there's a few good examples i can give of that um and it ties in with this this issue that we believe that we have a colorblind society, that that that's a you know there, that we we live in this meritocracy that's that's colorblind. So, well, there's a whole lot of context here. So let let me let me give you a little bit of history. Um, you know, the the term colorblindness goes back to um, the Plessy Ferguson decision in the 1890s, and and Justice Harlan made his famous dissent when they ruled on Plessy Ferguson. And we, we all know because he said that in the eye of the law, there is, there is in this country, there is no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. And that was a profound statement at that time. But if you go on to read the rest of his decision, later he says, the white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country. And so it is in prestige and achievements and education and wealth and power. So I doubt that it will not continue to be for all time if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principle of constitutional liberty. So we, 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 we live in this place where we believe we're, we're colorblind. Right. So, he, so the contradiction even in what he says inside, internally for him is on the one hand saying there's no one who's dominant and then basically saying we are the greatest. Exactly. <laughs> Effectively. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we're living in this contradiction and when we don't want to see race. We get the message that we're not supposed to talk about race. So you have a little white kid in the supermarket and he sees a black person for the first time and he said, Mommy, what's that? Mommy goes, shh. Right? Because you, and, and the message that the, the kid gets is you're, you know, you're not supposed to talk about this, that, this is, that there's something wrong with this and that that um, you know, it, it's not something we should be talking about. And then let's look at um, a few years back when, when Justice Sotomayor was going through her confirmation hearings. And um, I was, I was ama- wasn't amazed, but it, I was, it, as I listened to it, we had so many, there was so much response to her wise Latina quote, if you remember that. And all of these white senators talking about how she, you know, how could she not bring in her identity, her, 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 her ethnicity, race, and her gender into her decisions? And I was jokingly saying at the time, well, I'm really proud to be a white guy here because it's clear that we never, you know, we don't have an identity, so we're perfectly neutral. Right. So that there's this belief that, 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 that we don't have an identity. I remember I was actually driving up to Maine to go to um, – Bates College. I was driving up with Tim Wise, and we were having a conversation about this. And and um, uh, one of my friends was teaching a class uh, during the. It's called the X College. This kind of the during the January break at Tufts, and she was teaching a class on racism. And she was talking about how frustrated she was with all these kind of entitled white kids saying that you know, if it wasn't for this black kid in their school, they would have gotten into an Ivy League school. And and I said to her, and you know, and uh, I said that. Um, so the assumption in that is, is that that if they were black, the only difference in their lives would be that their skin color would be different. And so that that they we don't realize the impact that having white skin and the meaning in the history 
in the action behind that historically in our society, what that does for us. And so we've been, you know, I've been treated differently all my life because of the way I look. Part one of my interview with Paul Marcus. Tune in next week for part two, in which we'll discuss more of the recent history of white affirmative action in the form of the GI Bill and other programs. We'll also talk about why so many Americans are racially illiterate. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the previous ones in this series with Shelley Touchlock, Peggy McIntosh, and Natasha Wilson. While you're there, please subscribe to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely. Speak Freely.